Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise and it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Partial is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Give a gift of any amount. We'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Partial. Thrilled we're going to spend the hour together. I do want to remind you that we have a very important truth tool this month. It's called I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith. You know, how do you contend for the faith, as it tells us in the book of Jude, if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it? So as we start 2024, I thought this would be a fabulous resource for you and me to just go back and study the cornerstones of Orthodox Christianity. Why do we believe what we do? Can we articulate the reason for the hope that resides within us? And this is a wonderful book to just go back and say, here are the foundational statements and principles of what I believe about the Word of God and who Jesus is. And I think it's a great way to start the new year. We're listener supported. That means your prayers and your financial support keep us going. And that means everything. So if you'd like a copy of I Believe, you can call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can give online at in the market with JanetPartial.org. You have to scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. There's a cross on the cover with the words, I believe. Click it on. Make your donation right through the website. Thursdays are also big days around here because it is the day my partial partners get their newsletter. Now, a partial partner is someone who gives every month at a level of their own choosing. They always get the truth tool. But in addition to that, they get a newsletter that includes an audio piece that only my partial partners get. So I've always loved those partial partners who are there every single month. 
So if you want a copy of I Believe or you want to consider becoming a partial partner, 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Well, let me turn, as we have since October 7th, to Israel and get an update from my friends at CBN News on what's happening in the war on Israel. Here's Chris Mitchell. On October 7th, Hamas kidnapped Sharon Cunio, her husband David, and their twin three-year-old girls. Hamas released Sharon and her children, but her husband remains. She remembers the last thing he said to her. He told me, fight for me, don't give up. Please yell what I can't yell. Please help me to get out. And he told me, I'm scared as hell. This was the last sentence, I'm scared as hell. On Wednesday, Gutter dispatched two planes carrying more than 60 tons of medicine and other aid to Gaza for the hostages and Palestinians. It's the first agreement between Israel and Hamas since November. A senior Hamas official said that for every box of medicine for the hostages, 1,000 boxes will go to Palestinians. However, no word on when or how the medicine would be distributed to the hostages, many of them dependent on the medications. We will strive and do all the efforts in coordination with Qatar, who are the ones who developed, initiated and are leading this move, to make sure that, as is required everywhere in the world and from international organizations, including the Red Cross, to make sure that the medicines that our abductees need and they need medicines reach them. On Capitol Hill, U.S. senators met with families of the hostages, including U.S. citizens. Our sons have so much yet to give to the world. We must do everything possible to bring them back. Any deal put forward must include them all. These boys could be your boys. They must be brought home. They cannot be treated as a last priority. They cannot be overlooked. So we are going to do everything we can. We are going to do everything we can because our hearts are broken and we must, we must bring them home. All of them. Many of those hostages are likely held in the labyrinth of tunnels under the Gaza Strip. The IDF says the tunnel system is far bigger than estimated, with as many as 450 miles throughout Gaza. In the meantime, the fate of Sharon's husband, David, and the rest of the hostages remains uncertain. I cry all day. I just sit around and cry all day, watching your videos all kind of groups looking for any information about him, watching his pictures on my phone and hearing his voice messages. Until then, Sharon Cunio and the rest of Israel watch and wait. Chris Mitchell, CBN News, Jerusalem. Let me go back to the tunnels for a bit. I shared with you yesterday that even the New York Times is talking about how stunningly massive these tunnels are. We know they exist. They often pop up, by the way, in the home of a Palestinian widow who covers the opening of the tunnel with a rug, and she's threatened if she doesn't cooperate. But now we know how massive it is. Yesterday I shared with you that if you've ever seen the map of the tube, the underground in London, that is about 50% the size of the tunnels now that have been discovered in Gaza. And this is how they run their terrorist activities, right under the homes of Gazans. The second thing is about the delivery of aid. Tom Doyle, just getting back from Israel, notes that when aid trucks come into Gaza, that Hamas starts shooting 
at the people of Gaza, their own people. That's what terrorists do, so they cannot get the humanitarian aid. That's an area where you and I can be praying that that aid gets where the aid needs to go in a timely fashion. Benjamin Netanyahu is right. All this conversation about a ceasefire, well, there are two things that will happen before there's any ceasing of any activity on the part of Israel. Number one, Hamas is rooted out in its entirety. Number two, every hostage comes home. Clear, succinct, non-negotiable. Well, if you listened last hour, we had a wonderful conversation about uh, the climate advocates out there who were trying to tell us in no uncertain terms that the sky is falling and the science is settled. Well, if you were in Chicago lately and you had one of those EVs out, you discovered one of the downsides. By the way, you can go back and listen to our conversation in its entirety by going to the website in the market with JanetParshall.org, left-hand side, past programs, clicking on download last hour in its entirety. We do two hours every day. It goes back a year and you can get that in its uh, complete format. And you can hear what Steve Gorm had to say, particularly as he discusses his new book, Green Breakdown. But the downside of EVs, and there are a bunch of them, really came to the forefront as Chicago's been hitting some awful temperatures lately. Uh, This is a push, by the way, of the climate agenda of this current administration. But apparently those batteries don't like cold weather. They've discovered that it reduces their vehicle's driving range. Fully electronic uh, vehicles, which run exclusively on battery packs, typically lose an average of 40 one percent of their range when outdoor temperatures dropped to 20 degrees. Chicago's had wind chills below minus 30. And uh, that's according to AAA, by the way, who said that it's difficult. And then inside the car, they're trying to turn the heat on and that's draining the battery and that doesn't work. So tests conducted in Norway, which can be a pretty cold place, where nearly 80 percent of new vehicles are electric, found that EVs lose between 10 and 36 percent of their range during winter. A fellow by the name of Mark Billick of the Chicago Auto Trade Association said that EV drivers need to remember to, quote, hit their preconditioning button before they charge their battery. (laughs) It's not plug and go, right? Just the gas station sounds good to me. Back after this. Who is God? Why am I here? How should I live? Could you find the answer to those crucial questions from God's word? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Learn the essentials of our faith in a clear and succinct way. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. So this program is designed to get you out into the marketplace of ideas so that you can both fish for men and you can build up the saints. And it's a surefire guarantee that when you get out into the marketplace, one of the most contested issues out there is going to be the question of whether or not residing below the heart of mom is a person or it's just a glob of tissues. And whether or not it's your body, it's therefore your choice, is a transcendent value. Or in fact, there's the recognition that there are two people, one whose voice is silent and it can be silenced by the person who has the other voice. Christians need clarity on this particular topic in particular because you're going to be asked, and we are seeing some drifting in the church on this particular issue where, sadly, it's situational ethics that rule the day rather than the transcendent absolutes of God's world. So we're going to talk about the case for life and how we can be persuasive 
and engaging the culture. Scott Klusendorf is with us. He's the president of Life Training Institute. That's where he trains pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. When he's not speaking, he's writing. And he wrote a definitive book called The Case for Life, which has now been re-released. Only this time it's updated. It has eight new chapters, 10 substantially revised chapters, and a new section called Pro-Life Christian Survey of the major thinkers. Scott, it's a joy to have you with us. And I want to start with a very big question. I often say in this program that while this particular issue can wear the robes of a judge or the suit of a legislator, at its core, it is a spiritual issue. Now, I make that statement with confidence, but there are some who are listening to us all across the country who would dispute that. So I think what I would put forth, Your Honor, as my evidence would be the inerrancy of Scripture. And you've addressed this in the book. Is the Bible pro-life? Well, a lot of people, Janet, love to say the Bible nowhere mentions abortion and that nowhere will you find a command that says thou shalt not abort. And the question I always ask them when they bring that up is this. Are you saying that whatever the Bible does not expressly condemn, it allows? I mean, where in the Bible does it say thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? But we know that's not permissible. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible does it say thou shalt not engage in gay bashing, but we know that's not a biblical ethical standard we should follow. So the fact that Scripture is silent does not mean abortion is permissible. What we do know from Scripture is this, that all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches that, James 3 teaches that. The second premise is that because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood, meaning the intentional killing of an innocent human being, is strictly forbidden. In fact, Scripture is very clear that the shedding of innocent blood is a particularly egregious sin, and it represents a preeminent moral crisis. Now, from those two premises, that all humans have value because they bear the image of God, and that the shedding of innocent blood is therefore forbidden, we only need to ask one question. What are the unborn? If the unborn are human, and we'll argue in a minute that they are, then the same commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn as they do everybody else. So let me pick up on that. And that's an excellent descriptor of really the flyover. These are arguments of silence, as some would say. And the same thing could be applied with the question of homosexuality. When the Bible affirms, affirms, and reaffirms the paradigm of marriage as one man and one woman, it doesn't need to say anything more than the affirmation. So the argument of silence falls under its own weight. But let me go to this idea about the personhood of the preborn, because it's been interesting since 73 to watch how the metric on that has moved. When Craig was deposing uh, for a lawsuit that went to the United States Supreme Court, the woman at the time, who was the head of the National Organization for Some Women, she said under oath in a deposition, what the woman is carrying is nothing more than a blob of tissue equivalent to a hangnail. Now, I don't know how you make that statement with a straight face when the objective evidence of science points to the antithesis of that, that they become, the preborn become recognizable early on. But even before then, even the person making the argument started out as an embryo, as a zygote. So how do we, I mean, can we glean as Christian apologists on this? Do we go to science as our argument before we go to scripture? Let me give you the three most important words in pro-life apologetics, and you may want to write these down. They're very hard to remember. (laughs) Word number one, syllogism. Word number two, syllogism. Word number three, syllogism. Some of your listeners are driving home right now, and they're thinking, what on earth? I need a cup of coffee. What is he talking about? (laughs) Well, a syllogism is simply a couple of premises followed by a conclusion. For example, Socrates is a man. 
all men are mortal. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Premise, premise, conclusion. Mm -hmm. Well, pro-lifers have a syllogism we use, and it's vitally important we stick to it like glue, Janet, and here's why. Whenever the word abortion is brought up, people love to change the subject. Mm -hmm. Now, I know none of your listeners would do this, but some of us, when we're in discussions with our spouse and we're losing, every rational mind in the room knows we're losing, the Lord knows we're losing, we have a habit of changing the subject. And people do this when the topic is abortion. So it's vital that we keep the main thing the main thing. So what is that pro-life argument? It's simply this. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. Now we can defend that from science and philosophy, and it's important we do so because as you know, Janet, our critics love to say, well, your pro-life view is just a religious view. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure your listeners understand that that is a cop-out. That is a dismissal, not a refutation of the argument we just made. Arguments are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. You cannot dismiss it by calling it a name religious or personal view, you have to do the hard work of actually refuting it. And here's what we know from the science of embryology. From the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, Janet, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of your hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you'd yet to grow and develop. Beyond that, there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are differences, but they're not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Hmm. Scott Klusendorf is with us. This is going to get you to think critically and biblically. Note to file, not mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination. He travels throughout the U.S. and Canada to train pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views in the marketplace of ideas. So he's re-released his book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. And he's added chapters and he's updated chapters. And it really is, well, if I can put it this way, your war manual before you go out there and contend for the faith. More with Scott right after this. Visiting with Scott Klusendorf, who's the president of Life Training Institute. He teaches us how to contend for the faith on the issue of abortion. And he's written the book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a moment, just because iron sharpens iron, and I want us to be able to think deeply about this. So I want to go back to the syllogism. So the second position of the syllogism is abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. If I were advocating for the other side, I would say, well, therein lies your presupposition because you're saying it is, in fact, a human being. I'm arguing it is not. In fact, Planned Parenthood has done this kabuki dance lately talking about the fact that even when there's a heartbeat heard at six weeks, it's not really a heartbeat. And they come up with some other verbiage to pretend it's anything but what it is. So how can I get over hurdle number two in the syllogism if there in inherently lies in there the belief that it is a human being. The issue of personhood, the court studiously sidestepped in 73. They've never addressed it. They don't want to address it now because they believe it's a medical issue, not a judicial issue. But that's where we have to win the hearts and minds of the people we're trying to engage. How do we get them to see personhood in the preborn as opposed to inconvenience or something I control because it resides in my body? 
two uh, things they're throwing at us there, the argument that the unborn are not human and the argument that they're not persons. So let me just dice those out. If somebody says to me, the unborn are not human, my question is this, how is it possible for two human beings to create offspring that isn't human, but later becomes so? How is that even doable? They need to argue for that. It's not enough for them to simply assert that. And Janet, this is something crucial I bring out in the book. Pro-life Christians too often assume the burden of proof when it's the other guy making Mm -hmm. the claim. He -hmm. should be the one defending his own claims. I shouldn't have to do it. So I want to know, how is it possible for two human parents to create offspring that isn't human, but later becomes so? To quote the world-renowned philosopher Ricky Ricardo, they have some splaining to do at that point. Now, on personhood, you're right. There's a group of people out there that love to say the unborn are human, but they're not persons. And here's the question you should ask. What's the difference? Have you ever met a human that wasn't a person? Those of you with teenagers don't answer right now. But beyond that, have we? I mean, seriously, they need to argue for why it's possible to be a human and not a person. And of course, they're going to bring up all kinds of arbitrary things. They're going to say the unborn are not human because they're not self-aware or they're not viable or they can't feel pain or they don't see themselves existing over time. And the very first thing we need to do, Janet, instead of taking the premise as our own that we need to defend, we need to push back against the premise and say, why do I have to be self-aware to begin with? Why is that property value giving in the first place? Make them explain why. The -hmm. burden of proof is on them. If I claim right now there's two pink elephants dancing above your head, you don't bear the burden of proof. I do because I'm the one making the claim. So when people say to me, the unborn are human, but they're not persons, I'm going to ask them why I should accept whatever trait they're picking out as decisive as being decisive. Whatever it is, self-awareness, self-consciousness, ability to feel pain. Why does that matter rather than having a belly button that points out rather than in? Then I'm going to point out that their argument proves too much. Newborns are not self-aware. They do not see themselves existing over time. They don't have immediately expressible desires. Does it follow then they can be killed? Beyond that, their argument leads to savage implications for human equality. Think about this, Janet. If our right to life is based on some arbitrarily selected trait that none of us share equally and that may come and go in the course of our lifetime, then it follows that those who have more of that trait have a greater right to life than those of us with Mm -hmm. less, and human equality is on the ash heap of history. Pro-life Christians have a better answer. We are all equal and valuable because all of us share a human nature that as Christians we know bears the image of our maker. But that human nature is what gives us our equality, not traits that we don't share equally that may come and go in the course of our lifetime. Yeah, that's such an important point. You were implying Pete Singer here, and I'm glad you did. And this is the new chapter that you added, the Pro-Life Christian Survey of the Major Thinkers. So here's Pete Singer, who is one of the most nefarious thinkers of our day. It's an oxymoron to call him an ethicist, and yet he bears that moniker. And he's lauded by the likes of the Harvard crowd. And he goes to those exact points that somehow you're a person. And I want to say them again, because this opens the floodgates of hell, and it really ushers in an era of eugenics. The awareness of his or her existence, awareness over time and in different places, the capacity for wants and plans for the future. So if you've been injured in Iraq and you come home as a wounded vet and you uh, have some difficulty in some of these areas, therefore, have you lost your personhood on the battlefield? And if you follow Singer's logic, who believes that parents initially said 
should have one year to decide whether or not their child lives or dies. And I understand now he's now markedly changed that to five to 10 years that basically parents reserve the rights to say whether or not their child can live. Not a child who's struggling with some physical disability, just whether or not they have the right to live. So if we open the door, that is the incarnation of um, elitism and self-aggrandizement. I have value and worth. You don't predicate it on a standard I've superimposed. That's ludicrous. Yeah, and that I've arbitrarily selected. And of course, yes. this has this is devastating to human equality for the very reasons we talked about a moment ago. You know, our culture is obsessed with equality. They want income equality, marriage equality. Our culture tells us we can marry our canaries if we want to. It tells us <laughs> that if I want to marry a tree, I should be allowed to do it. But what makes humans equal in the first place? I don't think Peter Singer can give us a good answer. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But I know who does give us a good answer. Scott Klusendorf is with us. The book is called The Case for Life. It is, in a word, a tome. It is a very thorough way of exploring the apologetic of being pro-life. You cannot get caught up. And I know it's out there in the marketplace of ideas of thinking this is just a legal issue or this is just a legislative issue. It is a transcendent moral, more to the point, biblical issue. You just know, you just need to know how to articulate that in the marketplace. And that's what Scott does through his ministry, president of Life Training Institute and his book, The Case for Life, back after this. There's a sense of anxiety in our country, and I know you feel it too. As a partial partner, you can help reach the world with the truth and peace found only in Christ. And as a partial partner, you'll receive exclusive behind-the-scenes information and benefits directly from me, keeping you up to date on what's going on in our world. So call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We're visiting with Scott Klusendorf so we can learn better how to engage in a dialogue as we're advancing a pro-life worldview. And we do it always by speaking the truth in love, always through a grace narrative. And yet it's going to be a hotly contested issue out there. So what Scott does is he trains people how to do just that, become a pro-life advocate in the marketplace of ideas. And he's the president of an organization called Life Training Institute. And that's a pretty self-descriptive term. He's also written the book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. If you've heard that title before, this is the second edition. It has updated chapters and additional chapters in it as well. So glad you got the first edition. You definitely need the second edition because, well, the house that Roe built has toppled and now we have 50 iterations. So now we need to even be a better apologist than we were uh, before Dobbs made its arrival on the cultural horizon. One of the sections that I really love in the book is how to answer those questions that are repeated over and over and over again. They're the questions that you're going to get asked at the Thanksgiving table, or a friend's going to bring this up to you, and we need to know how to respond. But I think it behooves us to just back up a little bit and say, teach us how it's important. C.S. <laughs> Lewis said this, and it's so good, that Christians are the best argument for and against Christianity. Give us the guidelines for deportment here. How can be when people are not going to listen to us if our deportment belies our role as ambassador for Christ? So what are some important things we need to remember? 
Well, first of all, I think it's very helpful to ask penetrating questions rather than just shouting conclusions at people. And I think that opens minds to be more receptive. Secondly, I think it's vitally important that we state our case clearly. In fact, I think all of your listeners should know how to defend their pro-life view in a minute or less. And I'll tell them how to do that in a little bit. But it's very important we know how to do that. And then thirdly, and this is key, we need to recognize the underlying assumptions that people bring to the abortion debate. For example, think about all the street-level objections to the pro-life view when people say we ought to respect choice, privacy, we should trust women to make their own decisions, and we need to worry about poor women who can't afford to get abortions or raise another child. Notice that every one of those objections when put forward clearly as a justification for intentionally killing an innocent human being, sound repugnant. So here's what pro-abortionists do. They simply assume, Janet, that the unborn aren't human. They don't prove it. They just assume it. So you get President Biden saying on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade a couple of years ago, reproductive freedom, by which he means abortion, reproductive freedom is good for, quote, everyone, unquote. Uh, Mr. President, with all due respect to your office, does, quote, everyone include the unborn? Obviously, he wasn't including them. He was simply assuming they're not human. He hadn't argued for it. He hadn't put forth any scientific evidence. He hadn't made any philosophical argument. He just assumed it. Janet, it's kind of like me knocking on your door and saying, I'm from the IRS, and I want to know, when did you start cheating on your taxes? Right. And you protest and say, I don't cheat. I never have. And you and I keep pressing you, no, I want to know when you began. And you bring your husband in and the two of you convey against me, but I don't take it. I just keep coming back to saying, when did you start cheating? Well, you would rightly point out that I was assuming the very thing I was trying to prove. And this is what people do on abortion when they talk about choice, privacy, trusting women, back alley abortions, whatever. All of those arguments assume the unborn are not human. Yeah, excellent point. So now let me go, and you just touched on it momentarily, but let me go back to it because we hear it over and over again. And I think Christians in particular get stymied with this one. The declaration that if, in fact, abortion, which is not a constitutional right, that's what Dobbs told us, it has been taken away. There is no constitutionally protected right to take the life of your preborn child. And what they did in Dobbs is what they should have done in Roe, which is they should have made this a state's issue, not a federal issue. So now it's back at the state issue. Planned Parenthood has stated unequivocally that they want to stop any pro-life laws whatsoever in all 50 states. And they add to that that even if every state in the country had a pro-life law, that there would still be, quote, back alley abortions. And then the symbol of the coat hanger comes up. How yep. do we respond to that? Because most Christians get glazed eyed when they hear that because they're thinking, well, you know, that's true. I mean, government doesn't tell you when to get an abortion. So why? How do I respond to that? Well, one of the most winsome ways to respond is to immediately show empathy. And this is important because a lot of pro-lifers jump immediately to statistics. They say, oh, well, the CDC says only 39 women died from illegal abortion prior to Roe v. Wade. So why are we all worried about this? Well, you were just told about a woman who died from an illegal surgery. I think we ought to show some empathy. So I would respond as follows. I would say, you know what? I think you and I agree on something. We both believe that any woman who dies from an abortion, legal or illegal, that's a tragedy. You and I agree on that. 
But I would then point out that their argument assumes the unborn aren't human, because otherwise what the pro-abortion critic is saying, Janet, is that because some people will die attempting to intentionally kill other innocent human beings, we ought to make it legal for them to do the killing. I mean, should we make bank robbery legal so it's safer for felons? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very foolish argument that only works if you begin with the assumption the unborn aren't human. Now, after showing empathy and showing the the assumption in the argument, then I'm going to go to statistics. And I'm going to give you right now in very rapid fire form four pro-abortion sources that refute the idea that thousands of women died a year from illegal abortion prior to Roe v. Wade. Source number one, Dr. Mary Calderon. She was president or she was Planned Parenthood's medical director in the 1960s when allegedly all these women were dying. Dr. Calderon said in an American Journal of Public Health article that the risk from dying from illegal abortion was so low, it wasn't even worth commenting on. And she gave two reasons for that. Number one, the widespread introduction of penicillin made all surgical procedures safer. And secondly, illegal abortions primarily were not being done with guys with rusty coat hangers in back alleys. They were being done by physicians in good standing in their community who simply skirted the law. Source number two, Christopher Teets, Planned Parenthood statistician during that same era. He said that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion was, quote, unmitigated nonsense. And that was reported in the New York Times, an article I'm holding right in front of me right now. Third source, Dr. Um, Bernard Nathanson, who later became pro-life, but he was the co-founder of NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. Dr. Nathanson, in his book, Aborting America, conceded to the New York Times while he was still performing abortions that he had presided over 60,000 deaths, and he told the Times that the claim of five to 10,000 deaths a year was made up out of thin air by him and Dr. Lawrence later, and they sold it to the press who bought it wholesale. Fourth and final source, Dr. Daniel Callahan, who wrote the book Abortion Law, Choice and Morality. He supports abortion, and he said it's mathematically impossible that you could get five to 10,000 deaths a year from illegal abortion when only 35,000 women a year of childbearing age die from all causes. To claim one source, five to 10,000 a year, illegal abortion, stretches credulity to the breaking point. Now, notice I didn't cite one pro-life source there. I cited sources that support abortion, and I think that's important for us to do. That's why your book is so helpful, because it's replete with exactly the kind of information that you just shared with us. So this is not only part of your legacy library, friend, but this is a resource manual that you need to have because you're going to be asked. It's not if, it's when you're going to be asked about this, and it's going to be a contentious issue. And as Ambassadors for Christ, we need to be able to be unapologetic and yet winsome at the same time in contending for the faith, of which this pro-life position is a part. So, Scott, let me go to this idea, because I just talked about how it's a spiritual issue. So we're waiting to see what happens to a man who, in the United Kingdom, was simply standing outside of an abortion clinic praying quietly. Now, the police arrested him and said that he couldn't do that. Now, unfortunately, that's being replicated all over the U.K., and then we have attempts here in the United States to create uh, First Amendment-free zones where you can't get close enough to a clinic to simply pray. And so, as a result of that, the pro-abortion side loves to encapsulate this in bumper stickers like keep your rosary off my ovaries. In other words, they see it, they deny it, but they see it as a spiritual issue. And therefore, we're simply trying to infuse our worldview on them. 
And that makes a lot of Christians go weak in the knees because they don't want to be accused of proselytizing or thinking that we're forcing. Because if there's anybody who understands free will and grace, it's people like you and me who follow Christ. So how do we diffuse this one? Well, notice that the claim that you shouldn't proselytize is is itself an attempt to proselytize. You're telling people what they ought to do. So the claim is literally self-refuting. It's like me saying my brother is an only child or I can't speak a word in English. I mean, these statements are falsified the minute you utter them. If you shouldn't impose your views, why are you correcting me? And are you claiming I'm wrong? If so, is that true or just your morality? And if it's just your morality, why are you imposing it on on me? This is the the worldview known as relativism that tries to reduce all moral claims to personal preferences, like saying, I'm going to force you to like chocolate ice cream. Well, that's not what moral claims are. When we say chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla, we are making a particular kind of claim. It's a subjective claim that's true for me, the subject, but may not be true for you, Janet. But when I say something like it's wrong to torture toddlers for fun, or it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, I am no longer making a subjective claim. I'm making an objective claim. That claim may be false, but you got to show it's false. You can't just change the kind of claim that I'm making. And that's what our critics try to do. Mm. That kind of information is what you're going to get if you get Scott's book called The Case for Life. It is the second edition. It is designed to equip you and me to engage the culture on this particularly important issue. By the way, as president of Life Training Institute, this is where Scott teaches people how to do exactly what he's teaching us in this conversation. If you want to learn more, I have a link on my information page, ProLifeTraining.com, ProLifeTraining.com. If you're in traffic, don't write it down. That's why we put it all on the info page. So check it out. It's all there for your perusal at InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. Click on the red box under the program descriptor that says Program Details and Audio. Takes you where you need to go. Back after this. This is In the Market with Janet Partial. Scott Klusendorf is our guest, and we're talking with him as the president of Life Training Institute, where he travels around and teaches people how to advocate for the apologetic of life. And he does it beautifully, by the way. He's written the book, The Case for Life. His second edition is out now, so it's been updated and amended, and more chapters have been added. And right now, we're talking about the section of the book where he deals with those tough questions that, honestly, you know you're, you've been asked or you're pretty sure you're going to be asked. So let me go to the big one, the biggest one of all. And this is the one that reminds us as they teach in law school that hard cases make bad laws. So you always get the exception clause. But what about rape, incest, and the health of the mother? Now, I use that word purposely as opposed to life of the mother. But that one becomes difficult because even in the Christian community, you get people who start making exceptions. How do we respond? Well, let's take the easy one, the life of the mother. In that case, let's take an exact example from medical science, ectopic pregnancy. This is where the embryo implants in the inner wall, the fallopian tube, and rather than the uterine cavity wall. If you're a pro-life physician, you're faced with a real threat because ectopic pregnancy left untreated often poses a lethal threat to the mother's life, not her health, her life. And that's because as that early embryo grows in that narrow tube in the fallopian environment, the risk of that tube uh, puncturing and, and rupturing and the mother hemorrhaging to death internally is great. And so if you're a pro-life doctor, what do you do? Do you do nothing and let two humans die? 
or do you act in such a way that you save one life, even though the unintended but foreseen result is the death of the embryo? And I'm going to act to save the mother. Now, right away, somebody says, oh, you just advocated abortion. No, let's go back to our syllogism. There's a reason why I said those three words were vital, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. We did not argue that all killing was wrong or that we always had to make sure we never interfered with natural death. We argued it was always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. When you are performing a surgery on saving the life of the mother, which, by the way, is the only life in this case you usually can save, we don't have the technology to save the embryo. When we act to save the mother, we foresee the death of the unborn, but we do not intend it. With abortion, we both foresee the death of the unborn and we intend it. To give kind of a parallel example, a general in a just war can foresee the deaths of innocent civilians, but he doesn't intend it the way that Hitler did when he you know, conducted the Blitz on London in 1940. Hitler intended the death of children and civilians, Generals in a just war do not, though they can foresee it. So in acting to save the mother's life, I'm not intending the death of the unborn, which is what abortion is, the intentional killing. On the issue of rape, real quickly, I would say this. There's two types of people who are going to raise the rape issue. There are inquirers and there are what we call crusaders. Inquirers are intellectually honest. They've heard your pro-life argument, but they've bought it, but they're thinking about their 14-year-old niece or daughter, and they're thinking, how could I force her to give birth to a kid that will always remind her of what she went through? And they have a point there. It's true. The child may indeed remind the mother of that painful assault. So I think it's important pro-lifers do two things. Number one, show empathy. You were just told about a woman who's been sexually assaulted. Don't immediately go to saying, well, most women who get raped don't get pregnant. That just sounds very callous. I would start by showing empathy. And I would say to the inquirer, you know, you and I agree that that woman has been treated horribly and has suffered a terrible injustice. And we also agree that her child may, in fact, remind her of what she went through. Given we share those two points of common ground, how do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? And just let the question be there. In other words, we're bringing out the point that hardship doesn't justify homicide. Mm. If the unborn are human, we shouldn't intentionally kill them so others can feel better. If I have a two-year-old in front of me and his mother says to me, if you kill my two-year-old, I'll, I'll have a better psychological disposition, we would not do it no matter how good it would make her feel. And that's because we recognize the humanity of the two-year-old. So again, only if we assume the unborn aren't human does this argument from rape have any wheels to it. It just doesn't once you state it explicitly as a justification for intentionally killing an innocent human being. Can I infuse incest in that same category as rape and use the same approach? Yes, you can. Now, right away, your critic's going to try to look for some kind of third alternative. But here's the thing. The mother in this case, whether we're talking rape or incest, has only one of two choices in front of her, suffer evil or commit evil. There's no third option. You know, if you think back to World War II, if you're standing in line at a death camp in Nazi Germany and you're a Jewish citizen, and the guards say to you, here's a pistol, you either shoot your mother through the head or we kill you, well, you will choose to suffer the evil rather than perpetrate it. And the same principle is in play here. 
It is best to suffer evil. In fact, it's morally obligatory to suffer evil rather than perpetrate it. Wow. So let me ask in a world where two questions, and there's so much I want to ask you in the time remaining. Number one, do you see a sea change in the culture writ large? In other words, are our arguments, our dialogues, more to the point, coming through? Are we winning the hearts and minds of people who hold an antithetical worldview? We are losing at the moment, and we're losing. You can see it every time since Roe that the abortion issue has been put to the public. We have lost, and that's because the public does not agree with us on the worldview issue. And here's what that means for your listeners. Every one of us is pro-life apologists now, and we need to know how to make our case in a minute or less to say something like, I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages, you were a distinct living whole human being. And there's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that justifies killing you back then. You can say all that in 30 seconds and make a decent case for life. Wow. One quick last question, Scott. In a world where now feelings trump truth, that's why post-truth was the word of the year in the Oxford Dictionary, are your arguments still solid because they appeal to the intellect, to the mind, to reason, as opposed to this is my feelings? And an abortion is a very feeling issue. Yeah, and one way we get around that is to show the pictures of abortion that speak directly to people's moral intuitions. We don't think it's bad for history philosophers or history profs to show pictures of war footage or the Vietnam War that's graphic. It shouldn't be any less controversial or it shouldn't be any more controversial to show pictures of abortion. They speak to the truth of the issue. Great point. Wow, I don't know to end on. Scott, there's so much in the book. So let me just encourage my friends. I barely touched on all of the information in this book. So you and I are going to be the apologists for life, period. You don't have to sign up. This isn't a club you belong to. It's out of the overflow of the heart. We must and should speak. Scott, thank you so much for all you do. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Parshall.